0: Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on March 30th, 2022. The interview today features voluntarist and homeschool activist Jack Lloyd. His recent book, The Definitive Guide to Voluntarist Libertarianism, provides a concise and readable dissertation concerning the foundational philosophies of the voluntarist perspective. In this book, Jack describes how a free market system based on a combination of property rights and consent ethics can be used to peaceably distribute scarce economic resources in the absence of an organized state. Based on the foundational ethical construct that all human actions should be voluntary and free of coercion, the concept of voluntarist libertarianism seeks a society evolving based on the choices of each individual rather than the dictates of some transcendent authority. Jack's property rights system allows homesteaders and others who labor the land to protect their work through the use of common law mechanisms for self-defense. Interestingly, his vision does not include intellectual property or the enclosure of natural resources by any government agency, arguing that ideas and unclaimed resources exist inside the state of nature, which can only be owned through the application of physical labor. He goes on to address many of the common misconceptions applied to this libertarian philosophy, and posits voluntarious solutions to issues often raised in defense of the status quo. This perspective does not provide a clear vision of the future; rather, recognizes that the future is unknown. What it does provide is a pathway to a present based on empathic reciprocity that offers nonviolent solutions to potential conflicts. Though controversial and difficult to envision in a world where government and corporate control of this process is ubiquitous, Jack answers questions such as who will build the roads and addresses concerns about how property rights systems can prevent the presence of gangs or warlords in the absence of state power. He goes on to address other issues such as cleaning the environment, parental rights, the development of free market police, and why corporations will not take over the world in a society based on non-aggression. This conversation will dive deep into the concept of voluntarist libertarianism and provide a solid foundation for those who think a free society is possible. The book is an excellent read for those just getting interested in these ideas and also provides a great perspective for those longtime libertarians looking for a synopsis of the belief system without needing to wade through hours of academic political philosophy. To find out more about the work of Jack Lloyd, go to www.volcomic.com and find his comic book series with voluntarist themes. Or go to www.thephilosopher.com for musings, art, and essays concerning his libertarian philosophy. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this interview on your favorite social media platform. We rely on listeners like you for distribution of this alternative information. Discover more about The Shift, find hours of free content, sign up for the newsletter, or subscribe for feature-length versions of each episode by going to www.theshiftnow.com. You can become part of the conversation by friending Doug McKenty on Facebook or searching at D. McKenty on Twitter, and check out the populist papers on Substack for my personal perspective on politics, philosophy, and comparative religion. Enjoy this interview with voluntarist author and activist Jack Lloyd. I want to thank him for agreeing to this conversation, and thank you for helping to make The Shift. Hey everybody and welcome to this 115th episode of The Shift. I'm your host Doug McKenty. I'm joined today by author Jack Lloyd. He has recently produced a book called The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism and uh, it's actually a really great introduction, especially if you're unfamiliar with a lot of the concepts behind Uh, this notion of voluntarism. It's a great introduction to the concept, uh, and I wanted to have him on. As many of you know, Uh, I'm starting more and more to promote uh, my own libertarian belief system. For a long time, uh, I had been really looking for ways to find compromise. Um, I see the left-right paradigm as as so conflicting, such a divide-and-conquer technique that I've been trying to uh, figure out ways to find compromise between these left and right uh, sides of the same bird, essentially. Um, and just over the last six months or so, I've really come to the realization that I think this concept of voluntarism actually uh, incorporates both concepts. In a free society, you're allowed to be as socialist or communist as you want to be. You can join any commune. You can, uh, you know, go out into the state of nature and, and claim a, a property property. Uh, where you and your community can live however you want, you can engage in any kind of market however much you want. You can enforce any amount of property rights that you want. Uh, and I just came to this realization that, you know, in a free society, some people are going to choose to participate in uh, a free market. They're going to trade. They're going to have stringent, stronger property rights. They're going to uh, they're going to rent from a landlord. Some of the things that. Um, typically you hear as arguments against having a free market, and I just don't see how we can create a a society uh, where there are so many restrictions on what people can choose to do. So I wanted to have Jack on uh, to just really kind of define this concept of voluntarism and uh, have an in-depth conversation about the notion. Uh, So if any of you are are left-leaning, I think my goal now has become – to uh, change, to to get progressives to recognize that there actually are libertarians at heart, that if they really care about the people, uh, if they really want to help the people on a deep level, uh, then they should pay attention to this point of view. So thanks, Jack, for coming on, and thanks for writing this book. Do you want to just start by letting my audience know a little bit about your history
1: and why you chose to produce this work? Sure. Thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate you having me on. As far as my work goes, I've been... Doing all kinds of different things within the liberty sphere for many years. I've, you know, really have probably done the full gamut of things now with the book that I just wrote, which is a nonfiction book. I also have my fictional comic book series, a Comic Book Series. I produce content for a number of different brands, like The Honest Teacher and The Philosopher, where I script content, um, you know, shoot and create videos and do other types of projects, things like that. I have music out we actually just shot that is me and, and fudge just shot our uh, latest music video for the song i did not consent and we just really just shot that this past weekend so it's currently in post-production so I, i've done you know all different types of stuff from activism, sign-waving, wa- you know, sign door-knocking, all the way up to producing creative works and the like. So it's, a, it's been a fun ride, and I, I'm just really thankful to have gotten to the point where I could collect all my experience and, and knowledge and research into a book that succinctly defines the concepts of libertarianism and voluntarism in, in a unified way. Right. So what do, think, uh, what do you think are
0: the foundational concepts behind this notion of voluntarism?
1: Sure. So, when it comes to voluntarism, like that's the part that is focused on the nature of consent ethics and what that means is that you're looking to see how we can maximize consent among people in their interactions and minimize initiation of force. And getting there requires thinking about how people manifest their consent, whether it's as simple as, you know, just saying yes to something <laughs> or is it's, you know, it's more complex like there's a complex contract that has a lot of details to it. But no matter what, it's a it's a focus on trying to respect each other's bodies and other physical properties without, you know, initiating force against other people and and their stuff really uh, by seeking consent, being actively minded about that, and and trying to avoid assuming or or you know. Presumptively, uh, uh, thinking that you have a right to someone's body or property, and I think that there's a lot of different problems that arise from this when people assume they have a right to other people's body and and stuff. And you know, it's as simple as something like you know theft, or or it could be as you know more complicated and scary as murder, you know, rape, and things like that. But again, a lot of what we consider to be harms against the individual revolve around the notion of consent, and if you don't have consent. You know, someone being hit becomes an act of battery. Someone having sex now becomes rape. You know, and, and so on and so forth. So, consent really matters at the core of defining voluntary human interactions. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's why. Honestly, I have a hard time understanding why so many people are so against this idea because basically, it's just you know, treat people nicely, treat people well, have respect for other individuals. Um, you know, don't impose your beliefs on other people when they don't feel the same way about things that you do. Uh, I guess maybe why don't you talk about some of the some of the pushback on this level? Why do you think so many people in our society feel like the state has uh, even an obligation to impose its will on certain individual actions, and why it's so popular? I mean, why why do people? you know, really believe that this is kind of a necessary course of action in the modern day?
1: Sure. So the I think the first part that's really important to to take in with, you know, everything moving forward is the libertarian part and the focus on property rights. Without the understanding that each person should have the highest claim, you know, in terms of psychological respect, each person respects the person's body. and and the other person's autonomy um, to that body, if you don't have that that property rights grounded, then it's very easy to rationalize initiating force onto others for any type of utilitarian end. And at the moment that you abdicate that, that ground level respect, then you can argue for pretty much anything. You could say, right. hey, we need to kill a hundred thousand people of this ethnic background. Because if we do that, we're gonna save millions of lives otherwise, right? You could say, Oh, we need to, you know, take money from everybody to fund this initiative, because otherwise, you know, the world is going to be destroyed by some looming threat or whatever it is. If if you don't hold on to that core respect, there's there's no limit to what you can rationalize in terms of, of mass violence. And that's Really, the foundation I think to upholding that respect uh, for each other's bodies is recognizing that people need to be able to say no and to not be forcibly taken from in order to fund whatever person's idealistic vision of what the future could be. It has to be done through convincing people and getting them to support you, you know, with their own choice. And the closer we get to that type of arrangement with human interactions, the more observable peace you will have. Because by the nature of it, if you're asking people for permission, whether it's you know, a business thing or just, you know, whether you're touching them or whatever, if you're respecting their boundaries of what they probably have a right to, you're not going to create that settled that seeming unsettledness about someone you know, infringing upon you or or getting um, you know, you could say like onto your body or into your property in ways that's gonna, you know, make you uncomfortable. It's it's really that base level of respect that helps to reduce those conflicts and anxieties.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people bring up, it's so funny to me. I mean, basically my whole adult life, since uh, I myself started to be attracted to this notion, I've noticed that so many people have pushed back against this idea of property rights because they feel like a property rights system means there's the survival of the fittest and everybody's going to duke it out until one person owns all the property. They think that that is how it's na- it's just naturally going to end up that way and if we don't have government then you know it's it's going to be there's going to be like one ring to rule them all, right? And one person's going to end up owning everything by the nature of the system. What do you say to
1: that? Sure. I mean, to me that it's it's often silly to frame it that way because these same people are typically counter-arguing that the government should effectively own everything. So, if your complaint is that you're worried about right. someone owning everything, then how is having the government having a you know a claim against all people and lands and saying you owe us money forever, even if you paid off your mortgage? How is that not an organization that's claiming to own everybody, you know, and, and owning every you know by decree? It's it, so it's, it's kind of silly. I don't think that that comparative argument really holds water. And then if we're talking about the empirical of okay, what are those concerns about someone possibly? Getting close to, or or, you know, or or managing to try to buy everything, I just think that that doesn't um, really hold up in the end because there's so many disparate interests of people owning land, and there's so many different types of lands and things like that. That trying to manage that just, at least economically, doesn't really seem tenable. If you think about just just a simple point of comparison, right? Like the World Trade Centers, you know, in the order of you know thirty billion dollars plus in expense, right? That's just two buildings in a city. So, you know, that represents like some of the richest people in the world, right? You're in $30 billion. You're already like one of the richest people in the world and what, you can buy two buildings in the right. world? So, you know, I mean, when you start to actually break down the raw numbers and how stratified ownership is across across the world, it, I think it becomes more obvious that in reality, the only way you get to this aggregated level of wealth and type of control is where you have- a seat of authority from which to try to enact and steal at large. And that's what the government does. You know, a private business, if it's truly private and that, hey, you know, they have only voluntary customers, it's not the government subsidizing them or doing crony deals. If it's truly just, hey, people are buying it, well, then you have people, you know, having voluntary exchange because they want what they're offering. If someone's successful at that, then great. But they're not going to be able to, I think, um, afford to be able to buy up every single piece of, of property at existence uh you know at that level. And and those people, of course, themselves are having competition with other people who are gonna be wealthy, right? They don't exist in an isolated uh, you know, existence that is, you know, it's not just like there's, oh, there's only one or two people with money and interest out there there's you know lots of different people and and entities you know acting in a you could say corporate or organized form Mm -hmm. um that are acting in a different interest for why they want to buy or sell or this or that and the you know the cost of upkeep things like that so to me it's just it's not a very practical reality unless you're able to steal from everyone at large, like the government does, and claim that you get to own everybody by default—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not real. You don't really get to that point unless you have that level of power and that kind of psychological shroud to cloak your legitimacy in. It'd be very—it's very difficult.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I often feel like there's um, a certain projection that happens when I'm having conversations with these people where they're arguing for the government because they're afraid that private individuals are going to accomplish what the government has accomplished. And, um, and then they have this notion, which is interesting. Maybe we can get into this, that the government though uses its monopoly on forests or its monopoly on property ownership in a good way, because it's represented by quote unquote, this democracy. Um, what do you say about that? Can the democracy function to, uh, actually, um, you know, to actually uh, put forth the will of the people in a good way, in a way that actually sustains uh, the most number
1: of people. No, I mean, of course, democracy never could, because if you have a majority vote and there's no limits materially to what you could vote on, then the majority through vote can make you know, right, at least within the system of, of the laws or whatever the government structure is, things that would be unethical for individuals to do. If you would not be viewed as ethical as, as stealing from your neighbor, then having 51% say, yeah, we could steal from the other 49%, well then it's like, well, wait, that's that's not helping everybody out. If you think that, oh, well, if we get a majority to vote on something, then we could steal, right? So I would say the incentive structure of of democracy is that it will appeal to the lowest common denominator of self-interest. Um, and again, I say self-interest just within the fear of being pillaged from. I think the perverse incentive with democracy is, oh, if I don't steal from others first, they're going to steal from me, right? Because if you know that they have the other people have the power to take from you by force, then you're like, well, I need to stop them before they get to me. It's it's a very perverse in, incentive. So democracy, you know, in and of itself is not an ethical thing, and. If you're saying you can do things that would be considered unethical to do, like you know war and you know murder and and theft, you know taxation, things like that, where you know you can do it as an individual, then especially so. So to me, uh, voting. Um, is is never really something that should be looked at as something that's, that's admirable um, or something that's that's favorable in terms of you know any type of ethical system where you know where it's forced. And again, I'm not talking about if someone chooses to like you know pick where they want to go to pizza with a bunch you know, get some pizza with a bunch of friends or something like that. Uh, you know, we're talking about political systems of rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always found it strange
0: that. Um, You know, a lot of the people, even the theoretical communists, feel like, uh, you know, local communes, communities can function in in this uh, purely democratic way. And then they call it uh, a horizontal power structure because everybody gets a vote. But I never understood uh, and I've never heard an argument against this concept of the, the tyranny of the majority. Right. Once you give the majority the ability to do whatever they want. And, and I've, ex- I've tried to talk to people about this. Well, what if 51% of the people voted to murder the other 49% then, and I never get a response and they never, you know, but, but a lot of people have this idealized version in their minds of, of that the perfect democracy of course would work for the people. and And the majority would never vote to harm the minority, even though we see that every single day, you know? So it's right. just fascinating to me. That this concept of democracy has gripped people's minds so much.
1: Uh, I'd like to add to that too, that I think something that's missed when it comes to like the communist or socialist theory in terms of what they see with democracy incentives is that they are, you know, they're so anti-hierarchy and they're you know, they want everything to be horizontal with votes, but they never really take into consideration the idea that you know, when it comes to voting, it comes to currying favor, what kind of person is going to be able to be most effective, right? Because at the end of the day, you're going to have differences in different people's ability to convince others, right? Not everybody is the same in terms of their looks, in terms of how they speak, in terms of how they present themselves. So you have to think, okay, well, then what kind of person is going to curry the most favor? And we don't have to really look too far to figure that one out. We can look at democracy within democratic republics and other things like that now and we already get a sense of what happens you have people who say whatever they need to say to get elected they'll tell one group of people one thing they'll go on their campaign tour and tell another group of people another thing right and they just keep saying whatever they need to say to each person until they get elected and then on top of that what do they do they say okay well How can I appeal to at least as many people as possible to stay in power? So then you have that incentive there as well, that if you're in a position that is technically elected position, they're going to do whatever they can to try to guarantee that they get to maintain their position, and they're going to say and do whatever it takes in order to do that and that can include doing some very short-term oriented things or destructive things because mm-hmm. if they think eh, well you know if i you know give and this isn't you know a business environment they're like eh, maybe i'll give more people extra money and stuff like that in order to like get their votes like maybe bonuses and this that for, like select in select ways well they think well you know there's my way to like staying in power within this company or this that but then of course if that's the short-term thing right then you might be doing that at the expense of long-term growth. They're not thinking through, you know, the other losses and research and development, or the things you might be doing with the company. So it's really. Um it's anti-entrepreneurial it's it's anti long-term oriented thinking and uh, you know in structuring uh, business models this way and that that's to say i don't think that um you know if someone chooses to be in, in an environment like that where they have something, it's like worker owned do they have votes whatever someone wants to choose that right. that's fine i just you know it should be voluntary but i there are very serious psychological problems with it and from the ones that exist now like companies um, that might have something like this uh, you'll notice that they are not typically hiring just like any old person so there's some companies that have like close to this model i think there's, there's this one game company i just forgot um valve i think does this they but their their company and the people they hire are like really high level people you know we're talking like, you know, and their group voting, everybody there is like a genius, right? We're not talking about, oh, the janitor gets the same vote kind of thing. The janitors, are like, you know, third party contractors. They don't, they don't get even get in on this. When they have their kind of shared responsibilities, everybody there is like a really high level technical person. And they're all in on the same kind of level, you know, in terms of, um, the type of work that they do so you have barriers to entry in these companies for getting hired in the first place if you know what i'm saying right yeah they, you know they have they have a certain type of person they only allow in and whereas the communist socialist is like well of course this has to apply to everybody you know what i mean because again if, if everything's worker owned or um you know employee owned then it's everybody right but in the companies that do it now—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not everybody who does work at the business, and it's—it's it's most certainly only applied to people after they've gone through a, a, a very limited, narrow hiring process that rejects lots of people.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I never really understood. I mean, um, when it comes to the socialist model, oftentimes y- you see this uh, this concept that everyone is equal, but. You know, I prefer actually the the sort of art artisan apprenticeship model, where the apprentices, you know, it's it's just kind of well known that they don't know as much as as the master artists, and so they can learn. And so there is a, a hierarchy based on experience, basically. But it doesn't it, it doesn't have to be this huge corporate bureaucratic hierarchy or, or military hierarchy. But you've got to have a system that that uh, respects. the wisdom and knowledge gained from years of experience. Um, So I think there are different ways to set up social models, but also, as you say, uh, in a voluntary society, you can set up your workers' co-op however you like, and people can choose to join as long as they're not forced to engage uh, or the majority isn't um, acting in an unethical way, stealing your stuff, harming your, your person or your property. Uh, then uh, you know, set up your set up your place of business or or your living situation, however you like. It's one of the interesting things actually uh, that's happened to me. I get on these anarchist chat rooms or Facebook pages, and the ancoms and the ancaps are constantly arguing with each other. And I finally came to the conclusion that they were just arguing over lifestyle differences. Like, if you want to live in a communal environment, then nobody's stopping you on on my side of the aisle. So. Why are we arguing about this? It's It was really an interesting realization to come to.
1: Well, certainly, I mean, when it comes to if they're truly and comms, they're truly anarchists, which I find to be more rare, they, I think their lingering complaint, and I think this, this pervades all communist theory, is that they believe that uh, people who are otherwise holding property rights, like the ownership of the means of production you're hiring with wages, using money, things like that, mm-hmm. are committing unethical acts. And so it's it's a very difficult balance Because it's hard to have a separate system maintained if you believe that the very actions of outside um, commerce is itself a harm to you. It's like, it'd be like, you know, just like being like, oh, well, these people are committing acts of mass murder outside, you know, they're really just, you know, trading, whatever, but just to them, it's that level of evil. Like this is, these people and, and their transactions are the reasons why we can't be successful, because even though we're in a commune, well, they're hurting the global economy that would be, you know, a worker owned economy. So it, that's really where it falls apart. And I think that that's typically where most ANCOMs or socks end up really revealing the true colors and end up you know, kind of admitting they're not truly anarchists. They're they're they they say they're anarchists because they just hate, you know, being told what to do, but they're not actually anarchists as an okay, okay, like let's, you know, I'm okay for me to live differently than you are in a different area, kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the criticisms that I have is certainly that if you're going to go after everyone in the world that wants to t- trade with money or have a property right over a quote unquote means of production or, uh, you know, rent a room and be a landlord, then you have to set up a, a pretty hardcore authoritarian apparatus, right? I mean, you're not going to convince, like, it's one thing, again, the libertarian perspective allows the communists to go off on, on your own and live however you want, but the 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 communist seems to need to impose their belief system on everybody. And if only everybody thought like I did, we could live in this utopia. Um, it seems totally unrealistic and I don't see how they could ever achieve it without um, actually committing unethical acts of, of really um, setting up a society that was very dominating, that, that made illegal all kinds of, of personal choices that, that a multitude of
1: people may wanna make. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, communism is is class uh, warfare theory. So ultimately, with you know, with communism, they already had this pre built an idea that um, everyone who's in the bourgeoisie, you know, people who are the capitalist class, they're the ones who really control things. And you have to undo thousands of years of oppression. And if you don't undo that and return power to the proletariat, then you're not really bringing justice. That's why you know what a, a true communist wants to like you know kill off all the People they deem capitalists and then reorganize society violently by the state and re you know reprogram things. I would say, to me, that's the more accurate description of what a typical communist wants. And you know, there's communists you know who have great points about different uh, harms throughout history. Absolutely, like it's it's not like these harms don't exist in terms of um, state and corporate cronyism and other types of uh, horrible mass murders and, and imperial acts. It's just that they have no delineation between. Private choice in terms of you know ownership and hiring and uh, things like that, and the acts of mass murder carried out uh, through a through a state, a private partnership or the like. You know, like I think like the uh, East India, you know, uh, tea company, like the uh, East India Trading Company, and things like that. But that's you know they were hand in hand with the British government. They had their own militaries and things like that. So right. a lot of this stuff, I would say, really does revolve around um, British colonialism, uh, I would say, a lot of Marxist theory and complaints does revolve around that. even though, of course, there's been way more mass murders taking place throughout history from all different types of peoples and cultures and all different types of rules. You know, mass murder has been a very big norm, but they they tend to have a uh, a more modern Western view of uh, the current disparities. So.
0: yeah. and and what I think is actually interesting is that at least according to like the Marxist dialectic, that they actually, I mean, even though they want to, they've they feel the need for this violent overthrow of the quote unquote capitalist class. I think that um, they absolve this class of the of the ethical imperatives um, that have been broken uh, through colonialism by. Just calling it a, a natural historical progression. You know, we're naturally progressing through this period of capitalism into the next phase of communism. Whereas, as you point out in your book, the, the individualism that's promoted by this concept of voluntarism is based on the system of ethics. So I would look at a, you know, a colonizer as just being someone who's committed a murder or committed a uh, an act of fraud or, you know, created a protection racket. Um, and I do think this protection racket. I think the protection racket is government. It exists today. It's it's a continuation of this uh, system of of colonization that's been going on for hundreds of years. But I can point to it as an actual moral failure, rather than as some kind of a historical inevitability. Do you see what I'm getting at?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, in terms of just you know the accurate description of, of all the actions, I would say anywhere where it's where the actions are involving one person or group of persons carrying out acts of, of conquest, pillaging, and mass murder, you know, the core of that is, is just the lack of respect, respect to bodily property rights. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to the, the different conquests of the past, you know, with the various, I guess you could say, uh, uh, colonial uh, endeavors from, you know, Spain to, to the UK, there there is many different types of, of issues that arose where, Many people who were killed it was it was like governments versus governments in some ways um, and that i think that gets missed too is it's there's too much of a glorification of like native tribes like as if oh everything was hunky dory and there was all ethical even though you know there was mass human sacrifices and other things like that like burning children you know and worship of gods and mysticism um and 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 those kinds of things you know it, it's it's not it's not one or the other it's it's like there was both bad things and you don't you don't undo the bad things until you stop and say, okay, hold on a second, hold on, what's actually going on with who's doing what? The specifics, the actors and actions, and it's just it's it's a common tragedy across the world that there are certain people in groups evil who wish to rule others and to do so while stealing from everyone at large, and they want to keep up that rule uh, by claiming a, a kind of mystical divine right or claim that they're a sun god or that they're you know sent from the gods i mean this was the norm from much of human history in terms of rulers most most rulers uh, you know was kings or whatever type of you know emperors this, that they almost inherently had to have some type of mysticism to tie to their right to rule because if they didn't then they wouldn't be able to indoctrinate people to accept it as readily they needed something that would that it would affix their inevitability. And without that, you get a lot of people who would try to take over that rule or fight back. So they they try to be proactive. That is, these, these particular rulers try to be proactive uh, by rooting mysticism in with their rulership. So that way, people would just go along with it. And I mean, that's carried on even to this day. I mean, there's still, there's still yeah. people who are, who are claiming David, that you know their their rule is, is by the god of the gods and things like that, which is is you know mind blowing to me. But it's 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 a sad you know tragedy of of mysticism and mystical thinking and and that mixing it with the uh, statism. So
0: yeah, I mean, I I think there's a good argument out there that right now uh, scientism is actually kind of a replacement for that that old mysticism um, because uh, oftentimes now, especially over the last couple of years, we've seen science as the excuse, uh, though not a lot of uh, objective conversation about what the science really is or even uh, objective conversation about uh, what is the philosophy of science, how does science work, can science prove a, a truth, that then uh, allows you to break these ethical principles and encroach on somebody's um, body or property. Um, but it's often used as an excuse these days, I think very similarly to the way that the divine right of Kings was used, you know, a few hundred years ago to justify these similar behaviors.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. So, well, I mean, science is an act of, uh, of uh, thinking it's, it's not, you know, a, a living thing. It's not personified as some type of uh you know, independently acting thing it's it's just a methodology for investigation so i agree with you that you know science the concept has been you know attended to be personified or anthropomorphized in a way to get people to believe that like it acts on its own and there's this thing called science that you know you can go see and it tells you the truth and it's, right it's comedic to me because that that type of encapsulation is probably like the most opposite of what science is about in terms of the, the methodology of investigation. It's the literal opposite, which is supposed to be not based on authority or authoritarianism. It's supposed to be every single person's individual ability to investigate, question, you know, test a hypothesis and 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 seek out validation uh, to either get closer to a conclusion or end up moving away from the conclusion and, and coming up with a new hypothesis. So I, I completely agree that you know once science becomes this type of objectified thing and, and uses a means to to silence dissent then you know it, it's becoming its own type of religion and a worship of um, an idealization that of course just doesn't exist it's it you know it, it this doesn't science is not a living thing
0: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly just a, another similar excuse to justify uh control i think uh it's becoming more and more prevalent and popular. A lot of people kind of eat it up. Well, the science is settled. So that means the
1: government's allowed to do whatever it says the science says. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's another, you know, fallacy there too. You know, the is ought fallacy, the idea that describing something that exists gives you the ethical ought of what should happen right you know just because you you may see oh here's a banana you can see that and make an observation that's the is doesn't tell you anything about whether you the individual should eat the banana right that's an independent calculation of describing what is and i think that's probably where a lot of this uh, science labeling again i love science the methodology but the science labeling worship uh, as yeah. science you know, scientism in, in, a, in a sense, um, I think that's where it gets caught up as people making that is ought fallacy, that they think that a description or a descriptive um, analysis of something that is tells you then what ought to happen. And and that's just not true. That's that's, you know, an independent philosophy and ethics. That is not the act of science.
0: Well, let's get back to this idea of um, the individual and property rights, because I think, I mean, certainly uh, more and more over the last 10 plus years, uh, I've seen uh, a lot of people starting to talk about uh, any kind of, whenever you advocate for individual rights or individual liberties, uh, then you get called selfish uh and you get perceived as not working for the best interests of the community and of course the government knows apparently what is in the best interest of your community and you should be doing what the government says um but how do you respond to this i mean it's just such a common criticism these days and i i am actually have become more and more worried as i've seen you know people that i know uh really starting to advocate for almost a complete control of the government with no no restraints no restraints on on individual liberties um so i just want to delve into that a little bit deeper like why is the individual you know so important why is individual freedom so important from the voluntarist perspective
1: sure so i would just like to say first with the selfishness part i think that everybody acts with selfishness and how i define that is in one's personal interest, whether it's a physical or psychological benefit. If you are even sacrificing a part of your body or doing something that might feel harmful to you for behalf of another person, even if it's not a material benefit, you might have a psychological reason, something that you love about the person, you care about them, or you know, maybe you have a greater sense of like, I'm helping out my fellow man or woman, whatever it is. You don't do anything that you both have no material, physical benefit for and have no psychological interest in right? If you have neither of those things, that's right. called, I'm not doing this, right? You have to have <laughs> at least one of those in order to do something. If you have no psychological interest and you have no physical material benefit, then that means, oh, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing it, unless of course, you know, so it's using mind control on you. with some futuristic thing. But again, that's that's not really what we're, we're getting at here. So I, I always like to think about that because I think obfuscating uh, the nature of, of self-interest and selfishness um, does a lot of harm because they assume that um, being self-interested is somehow a bad thing, and reality uh, being selfish, in other words, having your self-interest in mind is probably one of the most important things to being able to get to the point where you can actually help others. Um, right And that comes from the idea that if you are not in a good place physically and mentally and financially, right? it's much harder to help other people if you're suffering, right? If you're in bad health, if you're really poor and struggling to survive, right? if you're mentally distressed, it's hard to help others when you yourself are suffering, right? So the first step to, I think, uh, self-care and being able to even have the ability to help others meaningfully has to stem from being able to have wholeness within yourself, to have peace and happiness in a good framework of thinking, right? When you are in a better position in a, your totalness of your being, you're then going to be able to more meaningfully help people, especially where you have access. And it's, it's even harder, right? If you don't have the ability to take care of your basic needs, then you don't even have excess with which to give somebody you don't have excess of your time or resources so yeah. i think that when people start to really come to terms with the fact that one if you actually want to help the world the first step is to help yourself because you want to be a good communicator you want to be taking care of yourself you know financially you want to be taking care of your health right so you're not burned to other people and then on and then once you're at that point then you have excess and abundance with which then you can say wow i'm doing okay i have enough to be able to say oh I can help out this person in need, or I'm in a mentally well place where I can be uh, someone's mentor, or, you know, I can... You know, make someone food at the homeless shelters. This or that, right? It's much easier to do those things and to get satisfaction out of it if everything in your life is doing pretty well. And I think that's what I I think the whole uh, you know uh, belief system that I have here is is trying to reach in the end. Ultimately, is that peace and prosperity? Because when you have peace and prosperity go up, it is a lot easier to help people in need. I gotta tell you, it's it's a little easier for Americans to help people in need, and that's definitely evidenced by. All the charitable things that people give to it, including things that are not even on the tax deductible part. I mean, Americans give more than anybody else in the world, and that's including the non-tax deductible part. People, you know, beyond like, oh, I'm just trying to get tax refs. No, no, even beyond that, billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars. So. To get to there, you need to have those resources, and that's why someone who's poor and in a, you know a very uh, distraught place and you know it's second third world country, they're not going to have the resources to help others as readily, right? It's yeah. a lot easier, you know, when you have other things good going for you to be able to help those in need. So once someone has that mentality and realizes that. I mean it it just takes a whole lot of stress off of them too because I think a lot of people have like weird psychologies about that where some people get to the point of being fast and stressed like they need to help someone like they have to do it to feel good about themselves and haven't taken the time to like actually fix some of the other issues in their lives where they have recurring trauma or recurring dysfunctional relationships and they're not spending time fixing those, but they're trying to help other people because, oh, well, that's gonna make me feel better to help somebody else, but you're still living in dysfunction or unhealthy, right? You haven't taken care of yourself. You're still struggling, you know, financially here and there, not, you know, being consistent. So right. I think I think that that change of, of framework of thinking will do a lot of people a lot of good.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually a really uh, important point. You can't help others until you've helped yourself first. And so is it selfish to help yourself to get on on, on sound footing, to make positive life choices, to work on yourself, to become a better person, uh, to have the freedom to be able to make those choices Um I think that uh, you're you're really uh, misunderstanding that there's a balance between the individual and the community, and the individual really has to come first before individuals can work towards participating in a good way in a healthy community. So uh, it's not really just one or the other the way I think a lot of people want to say, like, if you're not helping your community, uh, then you're a bad person. It's more like, well, you need to help yourself. And then be in a position to to be active in the community, to be helpful to others that also, uh, you know, need help. Um, Yeah, it's just something that's not really taken into account from this point of view uh, that uh, having individual rights or having the ability to make those personal choices uh, is somehow, uh, you know, advocating for that is somehow an act of selfishness. Um, I think it, it, again, it must, it comes from a misunderstanding that the nature of the marketplace uh, is inherently selfish as well. Uh, I don't know. I, I find it, I find it interesting because the very same people, um, who Who say this about individual rights and individual boundaries are the also the same people that sort of see it as inevitable that we live in this dog eat dog world where in a free society, everyone's gonna fight until the one person rises to the top. And I, I mean, I again, I don't feel that way about myself. I don't think that a healthy, strong person uh, then becomes sort of addicted to power and needs to control everybody. Uh, it seems to me like a healthy, strong person then has the wherewithal to be able to help others at that point. So um, a different perspective, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of like the uh, the psychology that drives people who are seeking power, I, I do agree there that very often there is trauma that underpins it. It's, you know, no one's going like, why I'd be like, let me rulers control them who like had an otherwise peaceful home with Nonviolent communication and peaceful parenting, and had you know, like, voluntary virtues and ethics. Like, it's it's very typical that uh, a lot of people who rise up in these types of ranks are um, are products. Uh, I would say, especially of the compulsory public schooling system, mm-hmm. that and that breeds sociopathy. And how that does so is that. In order to be successful in the schooling environment, you have to put down your personal interests and passions and emotions. Those who are most favored are those who are able to put on a fake smile and just obey and comply. And in doing so, that you know they get the old label of teacher's pet. They get the honors, awards, and this that they get all that stuff. So basically, in, they separate this you know their um, thinking and their feelings completely in order to put on a front. And often their more mm, deviant behaviors you could say are then pushed underground because in order to have the 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 type of presence that they want for themselves to be shown as oh, you're that good student, you know you're the you're the person who does the right stuff and obeys and stuff like that they ha they have to hide if they do anything that uh, deviates from expectations and I think that that type of drive um especially if you combine it with like people who like run for student government and other things like that it, it definitely sets up those kinds of um psychology is for power, the idea that because someone had to control what they wanted and their interests and that they had to put down their emotions for so long. To get to a position of power and acceptance that they rationalize then they're getting into power because it's, they're like, oh well, now it's my turn. I put my other stuff down for this time and I obeyed now it's my turn to rule and it's my time to obey. And it does, it does it sets up that kind of psychology that one day you can be you could rule others too, right? Right now you're ruled, but you'll be able to rule others if you just obey. And that's right. a big integration of that uh, Prussian schooling model um, with you know the, the power psychology in, in my observation.
0: Yeah, you know the schooling topic is is so huge when it comes to this because uh, I think through the public education system, people really are. A lot of people don't really think about this; they just assume that that education is. I don't. How do I phrase this? I mean, the whole system to me, it's so top down. The curriculums that get taught, the way that the kids are treated, uh, even treating even training someone that if you regurgitate the knowledge that I'm giving you, then you get an A. and if you don't, you get an F. this shame based system that, as you said, doesn't uh, forces the child to learn from a young age that they're not you're not living to follow your passions and, and your dreams and your beliefs and what you're interested in. You're living to follow these rules and do what you're told. Um, It automatically sets people up for uh, for an adulthood where they're looking at the world from this same perspective. Either you are being ruled by an authority, or if you work hard and do what you're told, you could become a ruler. Um, it's pretty amazing actually to think about the long-term psychological effects that this system has on the bulk of people that go through it as compared to someone uh, maybe that was homeschooled or even unschooled.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just makes me think, you know, what are the most common assignments, right, that kids get in school at some point typically is what would you do if you're president, right? That's a very common history or civics assignment. And that power fantasy, is is really what underpins i think the obedience this idea of you know you must obey and be controlled but one day you'll have power too and you can control others and it's um it's really sad it's it's sad what is done to kids um to just try to get them to you know follow the dictates of state bureaucrats that you know ultimately of course the goal is just to weed out those who are not compliant or who you know just don't have the ability to comply and to celebrate and elevate those who are most willing to obey so that they could be handpicked for various positions, um, in the current political and economic, uh, you know, environment. And and that's really, I think what the ultimate aim is, is that if, if they're trying to, um, get a group of people, you know, the top students to become the next, uh, i guess you could say a uh, controlling class at least those who are willing to obey enough for who, those who are currently in power because they they've they've signaled long enough that they're willing to do so and you know it, it's just horrible what is done to these kids you know in that environment and you know i'm a huge advocate of, of unschooling getting kids out of uh, compulsory public school because it is just pure child abuse and it's it's something that ultimately erodes young people's natural curiosity and innate the desires for learning. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a big advocate actually of like academics, like I'm an ap- academics fan fan. And even for those who are into that type of, type of learning, it also puts them into a one size fits all policy. So this type of, of, of thing I promote with unschooling is not even just tied to, you know, kids who'd rather work with their hands or something like that, or who are more artistic. This is, this is something that pervades the whole system when it's, it's a one size fits all policy, jumping through the hoops, signaling at the right time. And that's how you get your a, the whole goal is to see who is the most obedient ultimately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the other aspect to this that really kind of boggles my mind. I mean, I actually feel like this this may be the most important issue uh that we face and I wish that more people would would start to turn a critical eye to this concept of public education because of the deleterious impact that it has on culture at large. But the notion to me that everyone learns the same thing in the same way is also really kind of outrageous to think about that that i mean here we have again it's so confusing when you talk to people who identify as progressive and they cherish this concept of diversity and then when you start talking to them about well you know we shouldn't have a department of education that controls what everybody learns across the entire country because that eliminates diversity it's it's like you're talking to a brick wall. They they don't quite understand, and uh, and I, I just especially when it comes to the realms of history or how to interpret journalism or things like you know how to how to uh, how to really analyze and interpret the facts that you're getting from the world around you. Um, I feel like when everybody learns this same process and does it in the same way. You're you're really it's a very self-defeating process because you're radically reducing the amount of diversity of ideas that you could end up with. Uh, You're creating a very uh, homogenous society. I mean, can a person even vote? I mean, if you're talking about the democratic ideal, can you even vote if you've been through a public education system that treats everybody exactly the same and teaches them all the same information? You're not getting a lot of input when somebody votes. Right. (laughs) it's just it's crazy to me
1: yeah i i mean it's crazy in terms of the outcome i mean it's not crazy to me in terms of the design like it's it's a very intentional design that sure. is very effective and very brilliant from a you know an evil maniacal perspective it's a right. brilliant way to get people to be completely controlled under the ruse that they're being educated um, because it's it's easy to shame others and denigrate them and just say, oh, you would just want people to be stupid and can't read, right? Because it, you, you know, you're tie it to, to everything that's about intelligence. In reality, it's just not the only way to learn. And in fact, it's probably the worst way to learn because it makes everybody, uh, you could say, resentful of learning. And then they just focus on regurgitating and, uh, and repeating things that obey instead of really, you know, deeply thinking about whatever topics they're looking at.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. You look into the history of it, you see guys like BF Skinner, uh, literally talking about operant behavioral conditioning, and then their philosophies are incorporated into public education. And it's like, I don't think, you know, children should be Treated like uh, I, I don't even want to treat uh, my dog that way, or you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I mean, it's worse than treating them like an animal. It's it's a literally psychologically oppressive and and very controlling, and it's it's easy to trace uh, the history of the public education system to exactly these kinds of philosophies. I mean, they're not shy about telling you what they're doing.
1: So, right, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it it's something that. I, I think not enough people think about because they, they try to say oh see this this works they just look mm-hmm. at the obedience and they don't think about what the ramifications are in the rest of how they think and their ability to think um, and also all the loss that is unseen like the economics of the unseen in right. those who have been marginalized and abused um in the system i mean which is everybody technically but those especially so because they either are unable to or don't want wish to conform to what's been forced upon them and how those young people's childhoods um, have been, you know, essentially lost or ruined uh, because they either didn't want to or just were unable to, given the rest of their life circumstances, you know, conform to be you know good enough to be celebrated there. Right. Well, let's segue
0: then. That's a good segue. This idea of loss, the unseen loss, because one of the things that you mentioned in in the book, and I uh, I have had this thought quite a bit, is that. When you take on a a libertarian or especially a voluntarist perspective, then I think you let go of of having control of what the future looks like, um, as opposed to where the progressives or the socialists, oftentimes they have this utopian outlook about the future, where and and this gets, I think, into the idea of, of scientific socialism, and they've shown, well, we can engineer this culture or this society, and if we follow these scientific rules, then we can create this incredible future. But one of the things that you mentioned in the book, especially when it comes to problems, like the problems of who's going to pay for, who's going to build the roads, the one that we always hear. Uh, and it's like, well, you know, I don't know. I don't actually know how the future will work because there's eight billion people on the planet. <laughs> and somebody can come up with an idea that I, you know, can't foresee. And that's going to become the social norm because it works so well. And um, I just wanted you to to kind of comment on that. You mentioned that a couple of times in the book, you know. I don't I don't know what the future will look like because I, I think that's a, a major characteristic actually of voluntarism is being able to let go of that feeling that you control the future.
1: Sure. I mean, just a simple uh, thought that kind of backdrops that. You know, if if you could perfectly predict what the future would be and and how it should be, then that's an argument for central planning. Then you'd have the reason why there should be a centralized government that plans everything. If they can know for sure what everybody wants and needs at any given time to build up to a perfect future, well, yeah, then of course that's the the exact reason why the government should plan everything. But uh, as we know economically, uh, that is uh, just impossible because. Every single person has a a constant fluctuating state of wants and needs in any given moment. And the only way to actually deal with those constant fluctuating wants and needs in any given moment is for people to have total economic freedom so that they can make choices in the moment as is best for themselves. Uh, it's just it's very difficult to try to plan what every single person is really needing for dinner that night, and what yeah. you know, other possibilities might come up in terms of like sudden discoveries in uh, allergies or just not feeling it that night, or or whatever it is. You know, it's just there's so many different variables that that come into play with uh, with those changes. That the only way you can really meet those is allowing people to be free to choose and to support what they do wish for, and that which is not supported goes away. Because again, you you also don't want a bunch of waste, right? You don't want a bunch of stuff being made that people actually don't want. And now some people will will say, well, there's a whole bunch of waste in capitalism now with like companies making all this junk of this stuff that, you know, they need this or that. I said, and to me I say to that, I said, yeah, that's abundance. That's there's a difference between waste and abundance. Abundance is when you've already met the needs and there's extra waste is is literally like oh we need to meet people's needs oh now they're starving because we didn't do this right right that's 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 a big difference here conceptually and at this point the only thing that keeps the abundance from making it to other places readily you know that would Need it more if you're talking about like second third world countries and stuff like that, is those very governments that literally pillage the people there and enslave them and sell off their, you know, the natural resources in that area with special crony deals that all the leaders get the money and nobody else in the other region gets it and the property rights are not respected and so on and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. So the reason those other people are exploited in second world third world countries is because those governments don't respect their property rights they you know they're out there saying oh yeah the individual is sovereign everybody needs to be you know respected not even like the minarchist you know kind of ideology or tradition are they are they doing that kind of thing it's it's completely exploitative so it, it's something that has to be uh, reconciled with with the reality that we want to get to a point of having so much abundance beyond the, the you know basic needs of just you know meeting people's survival needs right just not dying right water food You know, you know, clean enough air, shelter, stuff like that. Where you just need that just to not die. We need to get beyond that, and of course, in many places, people are well above that and, and wildly beyond that. But getting there for the rest of people can't happen if you're disrespecting those fundamental ethical principles Mm -hmm. and that's really not that hard to see that those are not being respected when you see how many different governments are you know out there all across you know africa to asia engaging in in true warlordism you know and having like mass genocides and you know persecuting people like crazy political persecution you you think about china and like you know the the following gang uh uh uh, the, the uh the country muslims you know you could say that kind of movement that kind of thing putting millions of people into into jail like you you just have so many different clear cut examples of governments not respecting individual sovereignty and stealing from people and committing acts of mass murder so you know anybody try to say otherwise it's like yeah it's not very hard to take a look at the actual situation and realize They're not really being respected in their property rights at all. (laughs) Right. And
0: I even think a lot of the criticisms of quote unquote modern capitalism are because even in in the most capitalist societies now, it's not really a free market. I mean, there's all kinds of, of forced centralization. I mean, sometimes I've actually, for whatever reason lately, just because people talk about the accumulation, the centralization of wealth. Uh, Certainly, the corporate system has been able to do that. But in in a truly voluntarious society, I think there would be, for example, stock markets in every city. Any kind of major uh, metropolitan area would probably have their own uh, stock markets, even currency markets, currency exchange. It's almost impossible. Again, we're getting back to what would the future in a truly free society look like. Uh, And I think a lot of, of what people point to as flaws in modern capitalism would actually go away. If it was, in fact, a truly free market, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, government interventions in place that that help. I think that that upper class to centralize the means of production. And if those weren't there, that there weren't so many barriers to entry, uh, if there were a lot of uh, less expensive ways. For those that are not quite as well off to enter into a, a business situation, uh, I think you'd see a lot more decentralization of wealth and a lot less waste within the system.
1: Sure. And I would say, I would predict that you would see a more conservative mindset. And I don't mean like the political. I'm talking about uh, economically people uh, being more careful about what they do and where they put their resources, because mm-hmm. I think the state distortion on incentives right now is uh, puts people to a mindset that uh, what they do business-wise and their agreements don't matter, right? Because the government puts in a huge amount of uncertainty with those things, right? California's like the class action lawsuit capital, right? You, ne- you never know who's who's going to get sued and how the, the court's going to rewrite a contract. You have you know the government with their regulations and stuff like that changing up laws and trying to go after people this or that. I think that um, a lot of people- think that the government will come and save them, you know, right now if you know something goes wrong, a lot of people just have that assumption. hey, the sure. government will come bail me out or whatever. The, the big banks too big to fail. <laughs> right. So I, I think that there's there's a mentality that um has come out from those distortions in the market with with government interference and that is uh you know, led to people to do more risky things, you know, from whatever it is from the, you know the, the 06 to 08 uh, you know, housing situation and, and to all different other areas in the market, I, mm-hmm. I think you would see a much more conservative approach to money investing in business uh, as people suddenly realize, oh, okay, I have to be serious about this because no one's going to just bail me out just because, you know, I made a stupid choice and decide not to think about this or, you know, not to seriously investigate my business before I went forward with it. So and I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing that people become more conservative and look for ways to like really make sure that what they're doing is is uh, wise with their money, whether it's investing or, or starting a business or, you know, you know, whatever. I think that that's that's a big loss that's actually happened in America is he'll becoming more cavalier about yeah. the agreements they sign and 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 what types of business transactions they engage in. So I think the more that people take those things seriously, the better everyone will be. They'll have better respect you know, of course, your property rights. You are life.
0: listening to this. You are listening to the first free hour of the shift with Doug McKenty. For access to the full feature length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just six dollars a month. Access the full length episodes in video form through Rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKenty landing page. For nine ninety nine a month, you gain access not only to the shift but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's so funny. We talk about these from education to uh, property rights systems to, you know, financial systems and it's like to be open minded to the possibilities of what the future in a free society could really look like. you got to wonder how the Internet itself would even be composed uh, under this kind of open source situation where I think in a free society, we would see a, a radically decentralized Internet. Uh, you probably wouldn't even have companies like Google um, that could you know, that could really capitalize on centralizing essentially all of this data or all this information, because I think it would have all been created peer to peer much more in this open source kind of fashion. Um, if government uh, interference hadn't given these corporate entities the kind of a leg up in these marketplaces. Um, it's just amazing. I think actually the, that how different the world would look if, if we did live uh, in a truly free society and sometimes um, I don't know. You know, it's almost amazing to kind of sit around and and imagine uh, what it might be like because so many of these things that we consider so normal and so fundamental to our existence, all of them could be so so improved. You know, people have this concern that that a free market is going to create all this artificial scarcity. I just think it would actually just be ridiculous abundance. You know, people wouldn't even know they'd have so much money; they wouldn't know what to do with it all. <laughs> but Especially with all the productivity increases that we've seen in the last 50 years. I mean, the technology, the productivity increases should have translated directly into, you know, just a booming middle, upper middle class, which it did to some extent. But we've also seen a lot of wealth inequality as well, um, which I think is a result of a lot of these, uh, these market intrusions well uh, we're looking at about an hour and a half getting towards the end of the show i want to ask you about one more question uh about uh pollution about environment because i think this is another place where a lot of people uh are very convinced again that the private property system is what allows corporations to pollute um and and this has been a frustrating aspect for me from my point of view. Uh, what's happened over the years of, of government regulation and weakening property rights is that people no longer have the, uh, the power individually to sue companies that pollute on their land. Um, and instead, uh, these three-letter agencies will give, will give them a slap on the wrist. And yet, uh, when I go out into the world and try to explain to people how a, a property rights system can empower them to clean up the environment, uh, it's just almost like they just don't believe it, you know. It's it's something that they can't. It, it's so it's the opposite of what they've been told to believe. They think that strengthening the regulatory agencies is the only way to do it. Um, and you mentioned this as one of the objections to voluntarism in your book, so I thought we could uh, maybe conclude with this with this topic.
1: Sure. Yeah. So in, with my book. Um, I define pollution specifically as, as being a physical property rights harm, one that's um, you know a type of intrusion or damage, and one that is uh, unique uh, between parties. It can't be something that's a common experience to all, for example, you know people breathing out CO2. Again, it, everyone literally breathes out CO2, so you can't say, oh, CO2 is a pollutant, but mm-hmm, it's literally what mm-hmm. people breathe out. So when it comes to uh, pollution and property rights, I, I really focus on how the – Government is is really the core issue here in terms of excusing actual, uh, real intrusions of, of you know things like uh, toxic pesticides or chemicals being released on people's property and stuff like that because the government will either limit liability. Or we'll get permissions uh, for certain types of pollutive acts. I think the Chinese government uh, was was definitely one of those big parts of that. In in terms of uh, they just you know basically tax companies, they'd say, yeah, of course you can pollute, just you know throw us a couple bones and you can you know pollute, right? Trash in in the river. So you know when it comes when it comes to these types of concepts, when you have strong property rights and you can't pollute or get some other people's property, uh, then you end up seeing the people the businesses who are engaged in this type of activity having more responsible about how they dispose of waste. So, I think that that's just, you know, the core of that is that where there's a specific intrusion specific harm uh, that person or company should be held liable for that type of damage and where it's something that's a shared experience, you know, like everybody's, you know, using cars and and uh, electricity, other stuff like that, and you're like worried about how that might affect the environment. Again, that's something you have to convince everybody to change behaviors on, you know, where it's something of common experience, not just, you know, some discrete actor to actor thing. Right. You know, that, that's, a, that's a change for culture and business. And, uh, you know, something that, again, there's there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, here's an efficient energy solution that, you know, is safer overall for the environment, has less political effects. And I, I think of nuclear energy as a great example of that, as, you know, for replacing uh, coal. Um. Even though many coal plants already have you know filters on them and stuff like that that capture a lot of of the carcinogens, it's you know it, it's just another means to that end of trying to diversify energy uh, sources. Um. You know, with with fewer dangerous byproducts. So it, it it's something that over time, of course, I think in a truly free market will trend toward um, that which I think people uh, find both the most efficient, and convenient, and of course uh, the least harmful to them you know in, in terms of, of making things more pleasant for their lives because you know most people just don't like being around a bunch of smog and a bunch of trash typically you know it's not like yeah they, they want they, those people are like you know i want to live in a heaping pile of trash and i want to go outside and like You know, breathe pure smoke. You know, that's just what I want today. You know, so.
0: Well, it's amazing to to hear. I mean, I hear stories about people that live next to a petroleum refining plant or something like that, and then then everybody there is getting cancer because they live next to this plant, and they have no recourse. They can't just sue these guys and say, you know what? You know, this is I live. This is my property. My body is my person. You can't. You know, you can't have these these carcinogens floating into my lungs on my property, uh, causing me cancer uh, without paying the repercussions for that. Um, And even like you say, like things like, uh, I don't, I think the society wouldn't evolve to have common pollutants. um, If in the 1930s, I mean, it's kind of funny, my mom used to tell me these stories about living down the street, You know, I don't she lived miles away from the coal burning power plant, but they used to have to wipe the walls on the inside of their house and to clean from the from the smoke, from the smokestacks, from the from the power plant. And I just thought, like, why couldn't you sue those guys? Like, couldn't they have come up with a better way? I actually think that um, energy production probably would be something done at everybody's house, you you know, would be more of an individual thing in a free market because it's too expensive to build. The massive infrastructure that it takes to, you know, like get electricity from house to house when it's pretty cheap to have, you know, a windmill on your house or these days some solar panels or whatever alternative technologies may have popped up. Um, But the government decided to have this centralized system and lo and behold, there we have it. It's the only choice that we've got. But, um, I definitely think if people were empowered, I mean, I think about the those poor people in Flint, Michigan. That's another great example where that water, and and all the conversations about it that were going on, even when it was in the news, were never about the companies that polluted the water in the first place. Uh, you know, they were never to be held liable. It was always about the the government failing to provide the clean water to the people. Uh, or the government doing what it took to get them clean water. It was never about the the automobile companies that trash the water. <laughs> so, so I just thought that was fascinating. It's like so many ways that these guys get off the hook. And uh, like you're talking about in China, I've heard the same thing uh, here with the Environmental Protection Agency, where they basically allow companies to poison us a little bit, you know, we're allowed to get poisoned a little bit, depending on what the EPA says is the legal amount of poisoning that we can get that, you know, that we're allowed to have to endure rather than saying, hey, you know, I don't want your poison on my property. It's hurting me. Uh, and I have some recourse, some way to stand up against these guys uh, through through the system of law. Um so I don't know, you know, this is just such a fascinating conversation for me because people, again, they they tend to think that capitalism is just this outrageously destructive force that that trashes the environment and Im- impoverishes people and, and toxifies the environment, you know, that they're living in. Uh, when, in fact, a, a true voluntary society based on these free market principles, I think, would just empower everyone to, like... Uh, Keep their property clean, and there would be no way. Even larger organizations, corporate organizations, couldn't step on that because if everybody in a, in the area chose to sue because they were, you know, all their property got polluted. If 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 Ford Motor Company dumps something, some poison into the river, and it floats downstream and gets on a thousand people's property, but they can sue. Uh, there is some pretty big ex- incentive. To uh, keep the environment clean on the on the part of these people that maybe uh, are producing toxic substances, seems like a no brainer to me. But very few people really pick
1: up on this. And I think too, a, a big mislabeling with you know, I think it's the Marxist label of capitalism is they label capitalistic actions as people who are working with the government to create artificial monopolies through violent force. And I think that this ties in with the energy pollution thing, just thinking about how many different types of uh, more natural alternatives in both medicine and production were shut down by the government with hemp um, and with banning marijuana and other different types of things, uh, you know, in the early 20th century. And this Mm -hmm. was done to protect the interests of the Rockefellers and other people who had, um, you know, uh, an interest in having uh, oil and steel uh, be the main uh, products, um, and aluminum, uh, and instead of opening up the market to other alternatives, and for what could uh, you know end up becoming uh, a product that would develop you know, bodies for cars or, you know, hemp or using it for twine or for, you know, building houses or uh, for food and, and the like, and even for energy. So I think there's quite a few inventions uh, that have been shut out of the market that would have actually helped people live healthier, uh, more prosperous lives, um, you know, with, with lots of advancement, if it was not for that cronyism that took place with yeah. the government enforcing the wills of those uh through the state monopolists, you know they were a monopoly by default. They were, but they were those people were attempting to try to build a monopoly through the violent force of the state by you know regulating out competition or trying to control and and make illegal competitive products. And I think the ramifications of those actions uh, have been enormous for the twentieth century in, in terms of uh, you know loss of of what better things could have been made.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Why don't we wrap up with this one? Um, because as you mentioned the term capitalism even is such a twisted term i've almost stopped using it now Uh, i almost always say free market or free market principles when i'm talking just to make this clear distinction because so many people have this belief that it does come from the marxist interpretation of that a free market would naturally evolve into this crony capitalist state um and i don't see any evidence for that at all i see that that Cronyism is the natural, uh, the, the the natural result of power. When you centralize power into the state, you're going to have a, a essentially a crony capitalist protection racket situation. Um, and it's just so interesting to me that people misinterpret this as if it comes stems naturally from a free market. There's not even anything. In history, there, you know, was there ever a time when there was just this really free market and then we can see that the robber barons kind of grew out of that without government interference? I mean, I think it's very clear that as the government grew, so the oligarchy that was connected to the government also grew. (laughs) And it's not something that springs from from any kind of small government situation uh and yet when so when a lot of people use the term capitalism they're talking about minimal government free market and yet others really interpret it as essentially the system we have now of crony capitalism um, how do you deal with that you know i mean what, what do you think is going on I, I just almost feel like you know you can't have a conversation with somebody unless you define your terms And this word seems to have multiple definitions, and nobody wants to change their definition so they're even on the same page when they're having a conversation about these things.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, I just use capitalism how I want by defining it first, but I'm not tied to it if I need to communicate something, I can talk outside of it. I just think Mm -hmm. that when it comes to the word capitalism, if someone's already socialist, communist, they already are tying it to someone who is actually using violent force, which to me is kind of funny because... When you're saying that you're using violent force to achieve your aims, you're no longer enacting market transactions. You are now the state. The state is a mafioso organization that forces the goods and services on you at the threat of a gun. So if you're saying that these crony or or there's capitalists, whatever, that they do so because they're using violent force and they're working with mercenaries and soldiers, okay, well, you just described the state. You're not describing a capitalist. You're not describing somebody who's in the market and who's out there trading. You're describing the state. That's what. The government does. They say, "Hey, you are going to subscribe to our services, or else we're going to shoot you." So, to me, it's it's a defining characteristic that that delineates the two concepts. But I mean, again, you know, it's I don't need the word necessarily to to talk about what I'm speaking to. But mm-hmm. I often find that people who are hung up on that have a lot of intellectual baggage that they have to overcome, regardless of the term. The term is just the tip of the iceberg. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the case. It's just so interesting to me that, um, as you say, those that identify with this this uh, communist or socialist or progressive perspective, uh, they just automatically leap to this definition of the word, and it, it's... It, it, the fascinating thing about it is i think you're exactly right to compare the state to a protection racket or a mafia or a uh, an organized crime syndicate and I, I even think if you look at it the corporate government system is pretty much set up like a cartel and you can explain it that way and people who are voluntarists or advocates for a free market can can observe this um this kind of goes back to my earlier point about how i think marxists really see capitalism as this inevitable or, or this version end stage, late stage capitalism uh, as this sort of inevitability through this historical dialectic. And um, I think you've got to get rid of that dialectic and you've got to get into these ethical principles that you describe in the book. When you start looking at human interaction from this ethical perspective, then you can clearly see when somebody's being unethical, when you start to impose these kind of hypothetical historical dialectics on the situation, not only do you remove the, the culpability from those who are just bad actors, these sociopaths that, that have taken control of the system. um, But I think it makes it really difficult to, to even really observe what's actually going on, you know, and then, and, and unfortunately Well, this perception of history is what's taught in the public schools, right? And this is what everybody kind of assumes is going on. And I I don't think it's a very accurate portrayal. But uh, anyway, I guess we could wrap it up with that. Do you have any final comments you want to talk about that and uh, let people know where they can pick up the book and, and find out more information about your other work?
1: I appreciate you having me on, Doug. Um, In terms of my other work, uh, one of my main websites is volcomic.com. That's V-O-L, like V is in victory, V-O-L-C-O-M-I-C.com. That's my uh, website for my comic book series. It's a lot of fun. Uh, One of my other major pages is The Philosopher. That's T-H-E, The Philosopher, spelt with a P-H-O. So instead of I, there's no P-H-O-L-O. S-O-P-H-E-R, philosopher.com the philosopher.com so um, those are two uh of my website pages and then you know from there you could probably link to a million other different projects and other things that i'm working on there's just too much too much to cover uh, in in short and then uh, if someone wants to check out my book they definitely can it's it's on amazon um so it's just uh on there as a print copy, so I don't have it in digital yet. Maybe one day I'll, I'll do digital in a an audiobook or something like that. But for now, I want to do a print because it's you know I like that cover. It's it's nice artwork. Yeah, So yeah. It's not a crazy read as you can see. It's it's a relatively uh, short. It's very attainable, and I intentionally did that because. I know there's so many liberty books out there, and the biggest complaint I hear it's like, "Oh my gosh, it's a 900 page treatise. I'm never going to read this, right?" So I want to make something that was succinct to the point that you could get kicked off with, but it, you know, do it in an evening or, or or two days, something like that, and not feel stressed about it. Like I wanted to be something that someone could you know put by their bedstand and just know, "Hey, yeah, I can I can get through this, whatever." Yeah. So yeah. I just want to get people uh, introduced to the concepts, understand the basics, and set them on a path of understanding how those uh, principles and ethics kind of coalesce and, and help guide human behavior so
0: yeah sounds good i definitely recommend it as you say uh, so much of this political philosophy can get bogged down in some pretty deep uh, and lengthy uh, dialogue so um to be able to pick up this book get the basics uh in, in a pretty simple format uh, i recommend it for anybody that's curious about what they just heard in this conversation for sure um if you're unfamiliar with the idea of voluntarism, uh, and, and you uh, you want to get a good foundation, then uh, I'd recommend that you pick up the book. And I'll have the links uh, in the show notes for sure. Try to turn people on. So, um, thanks, Jack, for coming on. I'll let people know that uh, you've been listening to the Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty, and you can find all of my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, You can just, if you want to get involved, more involved in the conversation, I am on Facebook, uh, my personal page, Doug McKinty on Twitter at the McKinty. And my Substack blog is called The Populist Papers. I've been doing more writing lately. So if you're interested, then you can check that out, subscribe to that, and you'll get uh, the podcast there as well as my uh, written work. So thanks, everybody, for checking this out. And thanks again, Jack. Thanks for your work. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you, Doug. Take care. You bet. Take care.
0: Hey, ladies and gentlemen. And there you have it. That was my conversation with uh, voluntarist libertarian Jack Lloyd. Uh, I highly recommend the book, uh, The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism. Uh, it really was a, a concise um version of what can become very lengthy and and uh, very in-depth arguments about political philosophy. But what he did was he kind of condensed all of that into a few really important concepts uh, and then answered a lot of the questions that people have when they're confronted with this uh, strange and bizarre idea that we can live in a world based on non-aggression uh, and figure it out, figure out how to, how to make it work without... Uh, giving people uh, as wide a latitude to make choices about their own lives as possible. I've been attracted to this philosophy uh, since the early 90s when uh, I read a little bit of Murray Rothbard and it just kind of clicked that, you know, I don't think the government has to be in control of these laws. I think that people can choose different ways that they want to defend their property and their labor and their person and their personal belongings. Uh, and uh, these things can be adjudicated through a kind of a common law system. This has happened in the past in history, uh, and it's made a lot of sense to me. So I was happy to see Jack come out with this book that really explains things so concisely. Um, He kind of boils everything down, as you just heard, to the idea of property rights, but I liked his version of it, uh, which is really about homesteading and applying labor to land and then wanting that labor, those improvements that you've made to uh, to be protected in some way. Um, and then he talks about consent ethics, which is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Just in terms of the bigger picture, uh, as many of you, if you've been listening, you'll know that I've been frustrated with the left-right paradigm for a long time. i am um, kind of just recently been getting into it with a few Marxists, Uh, online and i wish these guys would just recognize that in a free society you can be as communist as as you want to be um we get into a lot of arguments about well if you have private property then the strong survive and somebody's going to take it all over and this is what's happened and capitalism was created out of this free market system and i I just don't see it and when i try to get clarification uh, on their ideas uh, i feel like uh I, I just, I don't. I don't understand it. <laughs> and I think a lot of it boils down to this idea of consent ethics, because when people um, cling to historical dialectics, like with Marxism or Hegelianism, and these big historical trends causing capitalism to happen, for example, um, they take the morality out of it. They take the virtue. They take the fact that you know, maybe this is just a protection racket. Maybe what you're calling capitalism is a cartel and it's a protection racket. And that's the people that run the racket are the ones making the big bucks. And that's what creates class difference. But, um, you know, that's the way I view things. That's the way libertarians view things because they come at it from this ethical point of view. I think the materialism that is uh, inherent in Marxism really causes people to just view the world um very technically, uh, very mechanistically, and it lacks the the uh, emotions, you know, the, the virtue, uh, the idea of, of uh, just that there are good people who believe in freedom and bad people who are trying to control good people. And when the bad people win, then this is the kind of society we get. That whole ethical conversation uh, rarely comes up. And yet, uh, libertarians uh, and voluntarists, uh, it's, a, it's a, a foundational part of the belief system. So uh, if you take nothing away from this conversation or from Jack's book, um, I think this idea of consent ethics is really important. So I was happy to have this conversation with him. Uh, I'm probably going to do, I'm trying to do about one a month, an interview on, on these ideas, uh, voluntarist ideas, libertarian ideas. Um, just because I actually think it's the it's the way to help people, <laughs> I think that providing them uh, with the free healthcare that you like or the free education that you like, uh, believing that your healthcare or your education system is what's best for everyone, uh, is not the way to go. I think we really need to start giving people choice uh, in terms of healthcare, in terms of education, in terms of. All of the aspect of their lives that have gotten shut down um, by government and corporate actions um, for a long period of time. I think sometimes it's more free, but uh, right now feels like the hammer is coming down. So, uh, again, great conversation. You can find uh, Lloyd's stuff at www.thephilosopher.com with a P H O. Um, and I suggest you check it out. You can find, you can get a copy of the book there, and there's a lot of other stuff. Uh, his wife, the philosopher, also uh, is involved. And so, if you're curious about this philosophy, then uh, go to thephilosopher.com and check it out. All right. Well, next week I'm going to be speaking with Joe Atwill. He is the author of Caesar's Messiah, a very interesting interpretation of Christianity, uh, how the Romans kind of morphed Christian philosophy into something that uh, and the christian story actually into something that was more propaganda for roman control rather than liberation uh, as uh, as roman christianity may have us believe so uh, that was the book that he wrote quite a, quite a while ago. I think I interviewed him about that somewhere around episode 20. So it was a while back. I want to have him back on. So he's also done a lot of work about social engineering, uh, social control, going back into the 50s and 60s quite a bit uh, as to how they were already implementing, for example, um, the common use of certain drugs like LSD, uh, even the hippie movement, uh, according to Joe, was engineered. Um by aspects of the deep state we'll get we'll get into it next week so you can look forward to that and of course as always you can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com sign up for the newsletter I'm asking people, too, to check out my Substack, which is a, a, a great way to get everything that I'm writing now. I'm trying to put out one a week uh, and then one podcast a week, and you can get it all on Substack at the Populous Paper. so you can check out my stuff there as well. Okay, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Have a good one. Take care.